welcome back. And if this is your first class, welcome to Music Detention. I'm DJ AAA. It was October 13, 1978, and I was a sophomore in high school. Not in time. The Yankees take the lead, 7-6. So Herzog's ball club continues to have pitching problems. The New York Yankees were putting the smackdown on my Kansas City Royals to meet the Dodgers in the World Series. All of the kids in my school were anticipating the slasher movie Halloween with the sexy Jamie Lee Curtis. Michael? Oh, oh my goodness. Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Well, maybe not all of the kids. I met a girl, and this was her favorite song. And my friend Andrew, the dude that introduced the Runaways to me my freshman year, stopped me in the hallway on my way to the cafeteria to tell me that nauseating Nancy Spungen was just found stabbed to death in her New York City hotel bathroom. Spungen's body was found in a hotel room she was sharing with Vicious in New York with a fatal knife wound, and Vicious was arrested for the crime, though he pleaded. Now, if you've never heard of Nancy Spungen, just stick around. And yes, I will explain the nauseating part. Nancy Spungent was a young, emotionally disturbed woman with lots of problems. And her death was like the game Clue. There was a murder weapon, but after that, the story becomes a crazy whodunit. There are many unanswered questions, but before we can address them, we need a profile on the victim and the possible killers, starting with the dude the NYPD wanted to charge with her death, Miss Nancy's lover, a dude who was given the name Sid Vicious, not the pro wrestler. And if that's what you were thinking, well, that's why you're here. Tonight in Music Detention, we're going back to the Hotel Chelsea and discuss and maybe debate the death of Nancy Laura Spungen and the sad ending of her accused killer, John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, bass player of the Sex Pistols and the undisputed poster child of punk music. Now, if you're ready to do this, let's go. You're listening to Music Detention, and I'm DJ AAA. Be here now the news. Sid Vicious will not have to stand trial for the murder of a girlfriend at the Chelsea Hotel. Sid is no longer vicious, he's dead. His nude body found in a Greenwich Village apartment, spoon and syringe nearby. The heroin overdose may have been accidental. Sid Vicious, a British punk rocker, became famous by being well known. Certainly not for his music. Perhaps for his public obscenities, antisocial statements, and vulgarities. Bob Lape has more. Well, 
Well, just one more in hundreds of overdose deaths in New York City every year. This one was the ultimate for a punk rocker whose life was a discordant jangle that gave savage substance to his stage name, Sid Vicious. John Simon Ritchie, dead of a heroin overdose at a girlfriend's home here on Bank Street. Detective Houseman, he arrived here at 6 p.m. last night. The party followed. Right. The heroin was injected about... Midnight. Midnight. He had an overdose reaction at that right. point. Right. And then... Uh, he came out of it, and then he went back to them. A little while later, he went back to bed, and then he died in his sleep. The ex-sex pistol was described as happy about prospects for a bright future when he came here to 63 Bank last night and girlfriend Michelle Robinson and his mother and partied a bit after having been released from Rikers Island. John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, had a 1 p.m. appointment with Homicide to talk about the murder charges against him in the killing of his girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. One hour earlier, he was found dead in bed. On Bank Street, Bob Lape reporting for Channel 7 Eyewitness News. On the morning of February 2nd, 1979, John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, was found dead from a heroin overdose by his mother, Ann Beverly, and Michelle Robinson, the woman hoping to replace Nancy Spungent. It was said while going through the pockets of Mr. Sid's leather jacket that Miss Ann found a handwritten note, and the note read, We had a death pact. I have to keep my half of the bargain. Please bury me with my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. There was a lot of talk about him having a pact with uh, his girlfriend that if she went or he went either from a drug overdose or something else, that they'd both go. And he said that a lot. He'd always said he wanted to be with uh, Nancy Spungen. Those who knew Sid Vicious said that he loved Nancy Spungen. But he really loved this person. I mean, you know, he'd been quoted in papers all around the world as stating it. He felt that Nancy was the most was the woman of the world. He felt that women should be like Nancy. And he loved her more than he loved his music. And those who knew Miss Nancy didn't understand As the embodiment it. of the punk scene, Sid and Nancy's relationship didn't help that image. Despite her problems, those who knew her say Nancy didn't garner a lot of sympathy from others. They said she was brash, abrasive, almost controlling, and extremely jealous over Sid. And pretty much hated her. It was said in many articles that I read that Sid Vicious tried to end his life several times after Nancy Spungent's death, making Sid Vicious, as far as I'm concerned, a 70s punk Romeo, because both men used types of poisons to end their lives. The police arrested John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, for Miss Nancy's murder, but was he the actual murderer? Some say that there were no prints on the said murder weapon. In fact, per an October 26, 1978 article written by Anne Louise Burdock for the Soho News Weekly, the autopsy report stated otherwise, and that leads me to make this statement. Nancy was stabbed sometime after midnight and bled out for hours before she was found. The knife, which was found in her room, had reportedly been wiped clean. But the cops only had one suspect, Nancy's boyfriend, Sid Vicious. He was arrested that day and charged with her murder. I first met Sid Vicious um, not too long after he was first arrested in New York. He was pretty fragile, 
He was, um, you know, uh, kind of erratic. I have actually the old original statement that was disclosed at the time uh, he was first arrested. And the first officer uh, that reported the uh, event said that he didn't know what happened. He wasn't there. He discovered the body at 10.30. He wished they would shoot or kill him. And he then identified himself uh, and uh, Nancy's punch. And that's what he said to the first officer. He never said that I killed Nancy. At least initially. He, he made a lot of statements at different times. But when he was first confronted, that's what he said. There are dozens of articles out there reporting the deaths of both Nancy Spungen and Sid Vicious. My report is simply one more. In 1978, again my sophomore year, four more things happened that I remember. First, but not necessarily in this order, Keith Moon, the drummer of the Who died. Joan Jett became the new face of the Runaways, and that pretty much ended them. Sid Vicious was accused of murdering his beloved Nancy Spungen with a knife, and Parliament Funkadelic, my favorite punk band, sold out Soldier Field in Chicago with their One Nation under a groove show. My point, I was around back then, but does this validate me as an authority? No, sadly it doesn't. Do a search and you'll find more than a dozen videos and blogs on Sid Vicious, Nancy Spungen, and the Sex Pistols. So if you want to know more about these people, look them up. I'm not a know-it-all. If anything, I'm just an old dude doing what an old dude does. Like I always say, there are people out there who are better and know more about these subjects than I do. Then again. And what do you think made it happen? It was meant to happen. Nancy always said she'd die before she was 21. <coughs> what would you like to happen now over the next, say, year or two? I'd like to have fun. What sort of fun? Any kind of fun, just fun. That's my object in life. Are you having fun at the moment? Are you kidding? Oh, I'm not having fun at all. Where would you like to be? Under the ground. Are you serious? how this story ends, but you don't know how it begins. Although Sid Vicious is everything punk, punk music is not the focal point, but I will play some, but it'll be after this.
This is Pat Benatar, my favorite rocker chick. The song I'm Gonna Follow You was taken from the Crimes of Passion album, released in August 1980, the start of my senior year. A B-side, the second song and my favorite of the entire album, which is saying a lot since Treat Me Right. You Better Run, Hit Me With Your Best Shot, and Hell Is For Children were all on the A-side. Crimes of Passion rose to number two on the Billboard 200 with three of the four A-side songs on the top 100. Okay, when a woman uses the word anything, you should believe her. Anything she could do, I could do it too. Wait till we get home, boy, I'm gonna show you. Remember that thing she did on stage? Time's out by two, boy, don't be afraid. I twerk it, twerk it, twerk it. Left, right, twerk it. Throw it in your face. Boy, you're looking nervous. That was Nancy Spongin. When it came to Sid Vicious, there was no level that she wouldn't climb to reach, and there was also no level too low. Nancy was all about Mr. Sid, so she would do whatever it took, even if that meant selling herself to supply her man with what he wanted or needed. And sometimes it took that. It was December 1976, and Nancy Spungent, a punk groupie and a prostitute, flew to London with the band The Heartbreakers. Miss Nancy was on a mission, but it wasn't to meet Sid Vicious. Mr. Sid was practically a nobody, a brash and obnoxious musician whose talents actually could be debated. Still, he was a member of the most popular band in the world at the time, Malcolm McLaren's Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols were rowdy and raunchy. Their music was loud and abrasive. Their lyrics were to some offensive, but that didn't stop rebellious young people from gravitating towards them. Miss Nancy's mind was set on the band's frontman, a dude who called himself Johnny Rotten, and she traveled from New York to London to meet and seduce him. But Mr. Johnny, he wasn't having that. Miss Nancy wasn't a bad-looking lady. Maybe it was her weight. Maybe it was her drug connections. Maybe it was because she was an American. But whatever it was, dude wasn't feeling her. But Sid the bass player was. And for him, it could have been love at first sight. Now I'm way ahead of myself. So let's turn back the pages and get to know Miss Nancy and Mr. Sid and get back to this point for me.
Nancy Laura Spungen was born on February 27, 1958, with her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. She learned to walk and talk before she was a year old. Because she had screaming fits, Miss Nancy's parents gave her barbiturates in liquid form to keep her calm. In 1973, at the birth of punk in New York City, Nancy Spungen, a Philadelphia native, was 15 years old and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. She was known to slash her wrist for attention and she was already a heroin user. Still, believe it or not, she was about to graduate high school with an IQ of 160. At 16, Nancy Spungen received her high school diploma and went to attend the University of Colorado Boulder. Five months into her freshman year, Miss Nancy was arrested for buying marijuana from an undercover police officer. And then she was arrested for storing stolen property in her dorm room. The university decided to expel her and the state of Colorado told her that she had to go. Miss Nancy was not going back to Philadelphia. <laughs> oh no. Old girl had plans. Nancy Spungen placed her sights on New York City and the music scene. At that time, there were only two bars to play that played original music, and that was CBGB's and Max's. I opened in December 73 as CBGB's, which stands for Country Bluegrass Blues. I made it a policy, the only way they could play here, not they could, the only way they could play here is they had to do their own music. That was the first time I had this new wave of what we call punk music with the group. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. Milton out of thieves, wild cord of my sleeve. Thick, heart of stone, my sins my own, they belong to me, me. People say beware, but I don't care. The words are just rules and regulations to me. CBGB short for Country Bluegrass Blues, is a New York biker bar located in Manhattan's East Village and is rumored to be where punk began in 1973. Notable artists that played at CBGB was the Ramones. Television. Patty Smith to Johnny. Johnny wanted to run. Johnny wanted to move, but the movie kept moving as planned. The boy gripped Johnny. He pressed him against a locker. He drove Blondie. Call me, call me, call me, call me, call me, call 
the heartbreak. And the talking heads. We are two strangers we might never have met. We can talk forever. I understand what you said, but I'm not in love. Do people really fall in love? What does it take to fall in love? Nancy Spungen arrived in the Big Apple and jumped into the punk scene. She became a groupie and, when necessary, a prostitute. There was nothing above or beneath Nancy Spungen. In 1976, punk turned three years old and the greatest punk band in the world was the Sex Pistols. This is a four-man group created by promoter Malcolm McLaren. Now, we're not going to talk much about the Sex Pistols, but I do need to mention two of the band members because they're relative to tonight's class. Their names are John Joseph Lydon, aka Johnny Rotten, the band's frontman, who's not much of a focal point, and Glenn Matlock, the original bassist. So we'll start with Mr. Glenn first. took over and I was a kid then, I mean, I'm sort of pushing on a bit now, I suppose, I mean, in comparison with the kids that are doing things now, if any are doing anything of any consequence, um, yeah, it was just to say, like, I'm here and this, you know, I'm going to go about things in my own way and not be dictated to by, you know, like the Rod Stewart's and people who are like the pop moguls and stuff who aren't really in touch with what was going on, I mean, it was, it was a street kind of thing, you know. Did you realise what you were starting then? Yeah, actually. When you've got something good, you know that you got it. I mean, you, f you feel a confidence, like an inner confidence. What, what do you think it achieved, um, you know, the pistols? I think it made people talk and um, question things about music, you know, and art, music as an art form and you know, the, the social significance of it, as opposed to j it just being like some sort of nifty little tune, you know, that you kind of hum along to. I mean, if you've got a record on the radio, you've got a perfect way of um, saying something, you know, you've got all that exposure, and I mean, people pay sort of millions of pounds for like a party political broadcast or whatever, and like you've got a three minute single to, to say what you want to in it, and if it's got a good tune, people are like, 
Glenn Madlock was maybe the most talented musician in the Sex Pistols. Mr. Glenn, a gifted songwriter, is credited for 10 of the 12 songs on the Sex Pistols' only officially released studio album. Never mind the Bullocks, here's the Sex Pistols, released on October 28, 1977, through Virgin Records in the United Kingdom, and on November 11, 1977, through Warner Brothers Records in the United States. This album featured Holidays in the Sun, God Save the Queen, and Anarchy in the UK, which reached number one on the UK official chart and number 106 on the Billboard 200 album charts. Now, depending on who you listen to, you will hear one of three stories for the reason why Glenn Matlock left the Sex Pistols. Number one, Malcolm McLaren wanted an edgier bass player, which he got. Number two, the others wanted Glenn out of the band because he liked the Beatles. And three, Glenn Matlock simply wanted out, so he quit. There's a lot of conflicting information out there about how your tenure with the Sex Pistols ended. Could you clarify for me exactly what happened? I left. I left. It, it, it became a different thing. You know, when I was in the band, I saw it. It was like the kids of the early who, you know, a band by the kids, for the kids. And then it, as soon as we got a bit of traction, Malcolm kind of wanted to keep everything in a state of flux. He was stirring it up between me and John. And it, it was becoming this kind, kind of cartoon strip. Thing. I was quoted as saying it was like being in the monkeys when I left, not because I wanted to be in the monkeys, but it was he was pitching that as a put together band, and that just wasn't true. We formed ourselves in Malcolm's shop, but he didn't form us. And I firmly believe that we he was very good at helping us at getting things going, and nobody would have heard of us if it wasn't for him. But nobody would have heard of him if it wasn't for us. So it was quite a symbiotic relationship there. It just became too much and I didn't think Steve and Paul had my back even though I'd written a lot of, not all the songs, but I come up with a lot of the riffs and the tunes and things and it was their loss. Either back me up or that's how I walked and I walked and that was it. But I thought I had the last laugh because in 1996 when we reformed they could have asked anybody in the world to play bass and they asked me. So I think they saw the error of their way. So Glenn Matlock is out, and he would be replaced with the man who would become the face of everything punk. His name, Simon John Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious. Much more than this, I did it much. 
John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, was born on May 10, 1957, into a bad situation. Now, what I'm about to say is my opinion only, and here's where the debate might begin. But Sid Vicious, as I see him, was a mama's boy. John Simon Ritchie's dad, a dude named John Ritchie, never wanted him. Mr. John was a guard at Buckingham Palace and a trombone playing jazz cat when he wasn't working. He married Ann McDonald and maybe he loved her, but I don't believe that he wanted her and a baby because he sent them both away with hopes to never see them again. Miss Ann took John Jr. to Ibiza, Spain, believing that a new life with her newborn and husband would be waiting for her. But John Ritchie Sr. never showed up and he didn't send her a dime, or in this case, a shilling. It is 1957 and Ann Ritchie is broken alone with her baby. It would take seven years with the help of the British Embassy to get back to the United Kingdom. And during that time, young John Jr. watched as his mother, Miss Ann, did odd jobs and sold marijuana to make ends meet. He also watched her use and become addicted to heroin. In 1965, Miss Ann and little John Simon, I think I like that better, landed in Tunbridge, Wales. Miss Ann remarried when she met a guy named Christopher Beverly. John Simon liked the guy and changed his name to John Beverly. But sadly, Mr. Beverly died in six months after the wedding from kidney failure. By 1973, things were changing from bad to badder. Anne Beverly was addicted to heroin. John Simon, now John Beverly, was in a bad way himself and told his counselor that he was contemplating suicide. Mr. John was 16 years old, and Ann Beverly decided that John Simon is old enough to care for himself. So she kicked him out of the house. John Beverly met fellow student John Lydon, who introduced him to his friends, John Gray and John Wardle. All four who would become locally as the four Johns quit school and began squatting in rundown houses. Three of the four Johns would then take nicknames. John Lydon was given the name Johnny Rotten by John Ritchie. And in turn, Mr. Rotten nicknamed John Ritchie Sid Vicious after he was bitten by John Lydon's hamster. The four Johns started hanging around King's Road in Chelsea, London, which at the time was the epicenter of swinging London. A favorite spot was sex, a clothing store owned by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. Sid Vicious met Chrissy Hind there, and I need to mention this because Miss Chrissy tried to convince Sid Vicious to join her in a sham marriage so she could get a work permit. One of the things I always loved about Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders uh, was that she always told me the story about how when her friends in high school, they wanted to f*** Jimi Hendrix. She wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. So one of the last things that she did before she moved to England was she was actually in the crowd at Kent State during the shooting of the National Guard. Her and Devo were both there. Funny how they became legends of the New Wave era. She moved to England out of Akron, Ohio. And to stay in England at one point during the punk rock revolution, uh, she nearly married Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. They were good friends. 
And they were literally going to get married so she could keep her green card to stay in England and work with her band, The Pretenders, before they actually had fame. So she ended up going down to this, what's the equivalent of the city hall here in the U.S. And her and Sid get there, and it's closed that day. So she's like, Sid, how about tomorrow? We got to do this. I really want to stay in the country. And Sid goes, okay, I'll be there tomorrow. But Sid never makes it because later that evening, he gets in a fight and he stabs a guy with a broken glass bottle. So he's in jail. Chrissy shows up to marry him and he never gets there. So uh, she never ended up marrying Sid Vicious, but she did go on to marry, of course, Ray Davies of the Kinks, the legend himself, and then eventually Simple Minds lead singer Jim Kerr. So uh, didn't end up with Sid, but ended up with a couple other guys who did pretty well. And I love what uh, Billy Joe Armstrong said about Christiane. He said, if I was a woman, I'd want to be Chrissy Hyde. There's your story. In 1975, Johnny Rotten teamed with Steve Jones, Glenn Matlock, and Paul Cook to form the band The Sex Pistols. I think I can be in a band called Cutie Jones and his Sex Pistols. The name's disgusting. I might come to a rehearsal of a band called Sex Pistols. This band was managed by Malcolm McLaren. Sid Vicious again would replace Glenn Matlock in 1976. And our story, it actually begins here. And she showed up with Sid. And I was thinking, this is an horrible person. It was like the weirdest thing. I never felt such a negative energy from someone. It was just a dark cloud with this bird. And I fucking hated her. First time I came across Nancy, I think Steve was shagging her in the toilet. <laughs> I didn't like her. Nancy was a hooker that was on the coattails of the New York Dolls. And I actually introduced her to Sid, and shame on me. In New York, I was dancing. Without any clothes on. You used to go down to the guys and dance in front of them and then get tips off them when you do a little hand job, you know, for ten bucks. Then we went to f. I just, I just, you know. What to do? Did it, you know. I just, there, there wasn't really anything to it. I'd just give good jobs. <laughs> That'll rip your balls off. I read the first Sex Pistols review. And I said, I gotta get over that. I wanted to see something exciting. Nancy, as his heroin dealer stroke girlfriend, was pumping him up with gear every chance you could get. He didn't like me because I was a junkie. He tried to keep me and sit apart for months, months, months. Everyone knows when a bird starts poking their nose into a rock and roll band, it's suicidal because that's when he really started getting fucked up and not caring about playing. I didn't want anything to do with her. We did everything to get rid of Nancy that was physically possible. I even dangled her out of a window one night by her ankles. The rest of the band hated me. Because I was just in New York Dolls. Johnny and Jerry and they were junkies. Sid Vicious saw Nancy sponging as all of that in a bag of chips. But no one else saw her that way. She was controlling, rude, and nasty. The members of the Sex Pistols hated her. The fans who watched and knew her, they didn't like her either. And the media, they titled her 
nauseating Nancy. Nancy Spongett had a take-charge attitude. Her focus was Sid Vicious, and he loved that. None of the band members wanted her around. Johnny Rodden introduced Nancy to Sid. I actually introduced her to Sid. Uh, Shame on me. And I believe it was to get her away from him. Remember, seducing him was her reason for crossing the Atlantic in the first place. But he soon learned that his idea was flawed. Nancy Spungent was still around and she was just as annoying as ever. What Mr. Sid didn't realize is that his relationship with Miss Nancy was toxic. She kept him with an endless supply of substances. Sid Vicious was already outrageous. Now he can barely function. So Malcolm McLaren and the members of the band devised a plan to kidnap Nancy Spongent and send her back to the United sure, States. We see the band members hatch a plan to force Spongent on a plane back to America in order to save the band. We'll track her on a plane with a one-way ticket to New York. How? Pull a sack over her head and stick her in the boot of a car. They actually follow through with this too, in stark contrast. To Operation Send Her Back failed. Miss Nancy came running back to Sid and now they are as close as ever. And this became too much for Johnny Rotten. There's the encore for the sex Sid Vicious was over the top. His popularity, it was bigger than the Sex Pistols. And add that with the band's issues with their manager, Malcolm McLaren, and something had to give. You get 25% and we pay your expenses. All very standard stuff. Were the Sex Pistols the band themselves or their slimy manager, Malcolm McLaren? Well, that all depends on who you ask. I became friends with Malcolm because he had a lot of contacts in music. He seemed to know everybody. He finds a way in with his blag. With two opposing documentaries existing and the band members themselves still disagreeing to this day about how much McLaren helped or hurt the band, we might never know the true story. John said he thought the problem was Malcolm and we should get rid of Malcolm and carry on and try and work it out that way. Of course, today, most people agree that McLaren definitely damaged the band, pushing them into confrontations, hitting them against each other and relentlessly controlling their public image. But Jonesy remains at least a little sympathetic to him. John came over. We tried to have a clear the air talk. We said to him, I don't want to carry on really much longer. The way this is going, it's like it's totally pointless. Someone's going to get killed. Beyond Malcolm, the surviving pistols still don't get along. So Johnny Rotten shut it down and he walked away. Well, actually, this goes a bit deeper than that. And we'll save that for another class. Ah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Sid Vicious is in a detention cell at the Manhattan Criminal Court building, waiting for friends to post $50,000 bail. Vicious is charged with murdering his girlfriend yesterday, and today a Manhattan grand jury began hearing evidence in the case. More from Jeff Kamen. Jeff? Detectives say the 21-year-old bass guitarist seemed to have been under the influence of drugs when police arrived on the murder scene. On his way to court today and in the courtroom itself, he was subdued as compared to last night. 
when he cursed and spat and kicked at photographers. The $50,000 bail was set by a Manhattan criminal court judge. The prosecutor objected strongly, saying no amount of money can assure his attendance in court. Sid Vicious and the woman police say he's confessed to killing both have a history of violence, according to music industry sources. The murder victim was remembered today as having recently told Vicious to slam against a rock club wall a woman who she didn't like, and then he did it. Vicious, who allegedly plunged his hunting knife into his lover's stomach in room 100 of the Chelsea Hotel where they lived together for the last month of their two-year relationship, was seen throwing tables at a woman in a Manhattan club recently. Vicious is reputed to have beaten a record company executive and kicked a woman who taunted him while he was on stage. Outside the hotel today, two punk rock fans showed up saying they are in mourning, but not for the 20-year-old girl Vicious allegedly killed. I'm in mourning for Sid today. Really? Really. I really feel sorry for him more than for the girl. Explain that, will you? Because, see, I think that he was such a product of his image, you know, and I think that probably he was, you know, like it was part of his image, and he got so involved in his image that he just would beat on her, maybe, and he got carried away. But I really don't think he could stab her. Why? Because he was so weak, his little hands could hardly hold the microphone. <laughs> it's true, it really is. If you ever saw him, you'd know his hands just dangled weakly. Yeah, but he wasn't too weak to spit at his fans or to stab himself with pins. But he can spit. Why did you like him and his music? What was there that you admired if he was so weak? I like weak men. This young man is lead guitarist of a New York punk rock group called The Rippers. Their act includes ripping off their shirts on stage, and the lead singer actually cuts himself with a scalpel as part of the routine. The musician locked out a newspaper account of the murder and then spoke about it. I saw walking right up the street yesterday. If I didn't know better, I'd say it was a publicity stunt, you know? It's uh, totally a mental case. I asked Chelsea Hotel manager Stanley Bard to describe Sid Vicious and his common-law wife and the way they behaved in the hotel. He was anything but vicious. In fact, I never knew him by that name. Uh, he was very quiet. He was a loner. They were sensitive people, and they seemed to get along very well. In fact, they were always holding one another in my office. So you sort of sensed that there was a great affection between them. On your left, Sid Vicious and the Sex Pistols band as they appeared in Atlanta last year. The British group crumbled under external and internal pressures while on tour in the U.S., and it fell apart. Sid Vicious, we're told, was depressed because of that and is thought to have increased his use of drugs. Now his girlfriend is dead and Vicious is the accused killer. Punk rock fans and musicians assured me today that the violence of their acts is pure showbiz and showbiz only. As for the landmark Chelsea Hotel where the murder took place, it is more used to names like Dylan Thomas and Bob Dylan than that of Sid Vicious, and its manager hopes the whole ugly story will soon blow away. Steve? At around 9.30 a.m. on the morning of October 12, 1978, Herman Ramos, the man working the front desk at the Hotel Chelsea, received an outside call from a man. The man said that there was trouble in room 100. It wasn't Sid Vicious. He was inside of the hotel. Moreover, Sid Vicious was probably still sleeping. About six hours before, around 3.30 a.m., it was said that Sid Vicious had taken 32 and alls, a sedative hypnotic or a sleeping pill type medication. But with that many pills, Sid Vicious would be out for hours. Nancy Spungent was dead for hours before she was found. 
A witness states that Nancy Spungent wanted dilutids. These are a variant of synthetic morphine and on the street, they're called D4s. So she contacted two men. One guy was a dude named Stephen C. Now he's identified as Nancy and Sid's regular Quaaludes and Tuanol dealer. The other guy was a dude who called himself Rocket's Red Glare. He was an actor and a comedian, and he died of cirrhosis of the liver in 2001. It was reported that Miss Nancy had $1,400 to buy pills, and she said that she was willing to pay $40 per pill. The witness who confessed this information was a guy who called himself Neon Leon. He lived down the hall with his girlfriend, Kathy O'Rourke. He said that Nancy Spungen called him at 4 a.m. to buy pot after Rocket's Red Glare returned to room 100 to tell Miss Nancy that he couldn't find anyone to sell him any D4s. Miss Nancy also mentioned that Mr. Sid had passed out from the 32 and all that he had ingested. Now, let's fast forward. After receiving the outside call at 9.30 a.m., Herman Ramos sent Charles the bellhop up to investigate. At 10 a.m., and before Mr. Charles returned, Sid Vicious called Mr. Herman and said that someone is sick and they need help. So Mr. Herman calls the police. At 10.45 a.m., the police from the 10th precinct arrive and Miss Nancy's body is discovered in the bathroom of room 100. So the third homicide zone is notified. At 11 a.m., neighbor Vera Mandelson is awakened by the noise from the police and she leaves her room shortly after to see what's happening in the hallway. She was granted permission to look inside room 100 and she saw the body of Nancy Spungen on the bathroom floor. In the hallway, Miss Vera saw Mr. Sid surrounded by policemen. His face looked battered, recalled Miss Mandelson, a 40-year-old sculptor, and he said many times over and over, baby, baby, baby. She believed that he was crying. When Mr. Sid recognized Miss Vera, he said, I killed her. I can't live without her. And his admission was enough for the police. Early Thursday afternoon, again, it's October 12th. The police arrested John Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, after making statements to the police and also the district attorney. Mr. Sid was charged with second-degree homicide in the death of Nancy Laura Spungen. Forensics arrived at 1 p.m. along with a representative from the chief medical examiner's office. There were several items confiscated. The suspect murder weapon, a Jaguar K-11 folding knife, complete with blood and fingerprints. And the infamous Jaguar 007 hunting knife. Most unofficial reports and content makers say that this is the knife that killed Nancy Spungent. It wasn't. Drenched in blood also were three hypodermic needles, a bottle of Tuanol pills, and some flaky brown powder. The autopsy of Nancy Spungen revealed more than a stab wound. Miss Nancy's eye and chin were bruised consistent with a fight. There were claims that Mr. Sid hit her the night before, which is possible. 
Sid Vicious is quoted to say that he loves Miss Nancy, but she treats him like crap. Then there were all of the track marks, which were proof of her drug use. What could not be confirmed was the stab wound. The medical examiner could not say whether or not if Miss Nancy's death was a homicide or a suicide, which makes the admission, as far as I'm concerned, of Sid Vicious questionable. While the cops zeroed in on Sid, things weren't adding up for the people who knew him. Everybody swore it was Sid and all that, but I, I just never had that feeling. You know? Why not? And the uh, neighbor didn't hear, you know, an argument or anything. Um, or they, I said if he would have killed her, the whole hotel would have heard it, you know? Because uh, they did have some fights you can hear, you know? They were always causing drama with each other, so the other one would have to pay attention to each other. I think she might have stabbed herself and think Sid would have come to her rescue and Sid, you know, didn't get up. He was passed out, you know? But she was probably very, very high herself. There was a lot of talk about him having a pact with uh, his girlfriend that if she went or he went either from a drug overdose or something else, that they'd both go. And he said that a lot. He'd always said he wanted to be with uh, Nancy Spongebob. Sid Vicious said as much during his last known interview in late 1978 with BBC's Nationwide. Are you having fun at the moment? Are you kidding? Well, I'm not having fun at all. Where would you like to be? Under the ground. Are you serious? According to the police report, Nancy Spongent was killed before 9 a.m. Sid Vicious admits to arguing with Miss Nancy at 1 a.m. He remembers that she was sitting on the edge of the bed with a knife before he fell asleep. And when he woke up, their bed was covered in blood and Miss Nancy was in the bathroom. He didn't say where, not on the toilet, not on the floor. He didn't say, but he did say that she was still breathing. Lastly, the report says that Mr. Sid went to the clinic for methadone. This is an addictive medication given to addicts addicted to heroin. When Mr. Sid returned, Miss Nancy was still in the bathroom. He tried to clean Miss Nancy up, but when he realized that she was unresponsive, he called for help. Now, here's the thing. None of this makes sense. First, Sid Vicious took 30 sleeping pills and he lived through it. The police alleged that Sid Vicious committed murder in the second degree while under the influence of a prescription sleeping drug. He only slept maybe six hours and he got up and traveled to a clinic for a treatment for his heroin use. He said that he saw Miss Nancy alive. There had to be blood everywhere. Why didn't he call for help then? Miss Nancy was said to have $1,400 Rocket's red glare didn't bring her any pills, so what happened to the money? Miss Nancy's face was badly bruised, but so was the face of Sid Vicious. But there was no mention of Mr. Sid's knuckles. I don't want to speculate, but what if they weren't fighting each other? What if they were both beaten and robbed? And what if Nancy Spongeon still had the ability to try and fight, and the attacker used the knife? Not her, 
not Mr. Sid. Stabbing herself is possible. It's in her history. But still, what happened to the money? Sid Vicious sat in jail until his friends posted his $50,000 bail. It took a few days. After his release, Mr. Sid got into a fight with singer Patti Smith's brother, probably over Nancy Spongeon. And he spent another 50 days in jail. And because he tried to kill himself, Mr. Sid was placed on suicide watch. On the morning of February 1st, 1979, after completing his detox program, Mr. Sid was released from Rikers Island. He arrived in Manhattan and ran into his friend, Peter Gravel. And Mr. Sid asked Mr. Pete to find him some heroin. $200 worth of heroin was purchased and delivered to the apartment of Michelle Robinson at 63rd Bank Street. Sid Vicious was with friends until 3 a.m. Mr. Pete noted that Mr. Sid was already nodding off, but Mr. Sid still took four quaaludes to help him sleep. And Mr. Sid died soon after of a drug overdose. And it was Mr. Sid's mother, Anne, and wannabe girlfriend, Michelle, who discovered his body. I read the death pack note at the beginning of the class, and it was said by some that the note was fake, but here's some validation. And they had this little house in Maida Vale, a townhouse in England, in London, and they had a little life together. I, I think that she was happy, if one can really define what happy is. But I think, yes, he did give her a reason. But then towards the end, within the last few days, I, I think she began to suddenly see things clearly and realize how far she had gone and where she was and that there was just really... She was in a box. There wasn't any way out. Deborah Spongent, Miss Nancy's mother, said that Mr. Sid wrote a letter to her when he was last hospitalized. And his letter said approximately the same thing. We always knew that we would go to the same place when we died, he wrote. We so much wanted to die together in each other's arms. I cry every time I think about that. I promised my baby that I would kill myself if anything ever happened to her. And she promised me the same. This is my final commitment to my love. You're listening to Music Detention. And I'm DJ AAA. Mr. Sid and Miss Nancy were alive. They did what they wanted. Neither of them cared what you thought. Nancy Spongent lived hard and fast. She predicted that she would be dead before her 20th birthday. And Mr. Sid, well, he was not vicious. 
In most interviews, I heard people say that he was kind and he was polite, and they actually liked him. Detention is brought to you by Smiley Enterprises Incorporated and this radio station. Re-recordings for personal use are prohibited. I am just an old guy with a microphone who's listened to a lot of radio as a kid and played in a gazillion cover bands. I'm not kidding. Over a 30-year span, I talk about my experiences and what I remember, but don't take my words as the law question what you hear. Look things up and correct me when I'm wrong. Maybe the way I remember it isn't exactly how it was. For show transcripts and other useful information, go to the Music Detention website. We spell music with a Z and a K. There's also a Facebook page and it would be awesome if you logged in and told me what you think, good or bad. Your comments are appreciated. You can also ask for the names of the songs that I spun for this class. Really, I don't mind sharing. After many of these classes are aired on this station, they're placed on demand, so you can return to them whenever you like. Thank you. Visit this station's app or website for a listing of what classes are available. New music detention classes are made available on Mondays after they're aired. You can hear them on Spotify, iHeartRadio.com, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Not all of these apps are free. Still, if you are a user of any of these, just search Music Detention and listen whenever you like. And please consider giving Music Detention a like and a subscribe. Let me know that you're a listener and know that your input goes a long way. You would also be doing this station a solid if you listened right here. Support your local radio station first and know that they are working hard to keep you because you matter. Let the station manager know that you're a listener and of any ideas that you have. Your input is the first step to change and your comments are greatly appreciated. Well, that's all I've got. Thanks for listening and for putting up with me. Have an amazing week. You can do it. And Lord willing, we will do this again soon. You're listening to Music Detention, and I'm DJ Triple A.